0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit audio bandwidth for security now is provided by aol music and spinner.com where you can get free mp3s exclusive interviews and more video bandwidth for security now is provided by cashfly at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 237 for February 25th, 2010. The power of pointers. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Picture yourself on a phone call, sharing and explaining something visual with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomeeting.com/securitynow. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you would like to know about security online and privacy. And, of course, no better person to do this than our security guru himself, Mr. Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation. That's GRC.com. Steve is here to, uh, to save us from ourselves and the bad guys out there. Oh, and
1: those bad guys are industrious, Leo. They're- oh, they
0: are. They really are. I did
1: a radio interview late
0: last night on uh, Coast to Coast. You know the overnight show with George Nori. Yeah, and uh, you know they like to do conspiracy theory, alien abductions, that kind of thing. And um, they call, and they always call. And it's funny because they always kind of like I think all mainstream media grab onto kind of the wrong thing Mm -hmm. Um, instead of like the fact that somebody could hijack your browser. And you know they're 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 they've. I hear that GPS has been hacked. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, if you have thousands of dollars in the right, you know, you jamming equipment, I guess you could hack GPS. But so, but apparently, they, they, theoretically, they figured out a way to, to either, I mean, jamming's easy, but what they really are trying to do is grab GPS signals and reroute trucks or boats to where the bad guys are. Oh, you think you're heading to the depot? No, you're going to a dead end in the middle of nowhere. <sighs>
1: Wow, well, that would be ser- some serious technology. I mean, exactly. it's amazing to me that GPS works at all. And, of course, it's it's based on phenomenally precise timing of signals from multiple satellites. And so, you know, in order to deliberately mess with one particular target's right. Belief of location. I mean, that's some some serious voodoo. That's what I said. I mean, you can jam it. That's easy.
0: And there's there's easy ways to do that because it's a very weak weight radio signal. But to actually reprogram
1: it. Mm. mm. Yeah. Anyway, what are we talking about today? Today, um, the title of this podcast is Indirection, the Power of Pointers. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to talk about how... How they existed from the dawn of computing, and they have never stopped being a problem. Wow, because they're really good and powerful and important, but boy, they're just a constant source of of trouble. And of course, so it does tie in. I mean, this is basically sort of my continuing, um, you know the this thread of how computers work, and we're gonna we're gonna sort of start from there, but of course, Pointers being mishandled is a serious security problem. It's, it's at the root of many of the, of the problems that we talk about uh, every day. And we've got, of course, some problems to talk about, new problems. Um, Isn't it interesting uh,
0: that as we kind of develop from first principles computing, that so early on we've got to the problems that can cause security flaws? I mean, it's it's only, you know... Just to step up from machine language and already we can see where the problems lie.
1: Yeah, you know, it's not at all that computers were ever better at doing what they're doing. It's that when we started connecting them together, mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, you no longer needed sneaker net in order to, you know, for viruses to jump onto floppy disks and wait to be transported to some other machine. Now they've got the the, the world, literally, is, uh, is available to the world, them. So. The world is your oyster. Yes. So, last week we talked about Adobe and problems with Flash. Well, Adobe is still in the doghouse. Mm-mm. They have just released an out-of-cycle patch. So, you know... How is that uh, quarterly update going for you? (laughs) They haven't done a quarterly update yet. (laughs) No. They they got such problems. I don't know what they were thinking. Oh, we're going to hold this and and wait only every three months. Like, good luck with that. (laughs) So I wanted to let everyone know that there has been, since they last heard this podcast, a point update to Reader, both uh, Reader and Acrobat, the eight point series uh, went from eight point two to eight point two point one. The nine, we 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 were at nine point three. Now we're at nine point three point one, and so so um, anyone using Reader ought to um, open up a PDF and then have it check for updates, and you'll find some. Um, there were two critical vulnerabilities, and turns out one is actually the same problem that they had in Flash. So there may have been some code sharing going on, and they realize, ooh, shoot, uh, we got to fix Reader and Acrobat, too, because it's got the same problem. So what they fixed last week in Flash, they also have now fixed this week in Reader and Acrobat. So just uh, time to get that updated. Um, Google Chrome has been updated. Anything prior to... 4.0.249.89 4.0.249.89 is a problem. So that's the current version ending in 249.89. Um, and it's it's important to update if you are a Chrome user. Now, we know that Google is not abandoning Chrome. Chrome, I think, it has a little somewhere between 5 and 6% of the market right now. So it's there. It's number 4th in line in terms of browser share and and Google certainly remains committed to it the 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 sort of the scary thing about vulnerability disclosures in Chrome is that because it's open source full details are publicly available via source code analysis so one problem was a vulnerability created by errors in their handling of DNS and the way proxy lists are interpreted, which could lead to disclosure of sensitive data. Um, another vulnerability resulted from an integer overflow in the V8 engine, which is their, their scripting engine. A third vulnerability is caused by an error in the way Ruby tags were yeah. being processed. Um, there's a, the vulnerability number four involved the way href inside of iframes, those are inline HTML frames, were processed that... Could lead to disclosure of the redirection targets. Um, there is an error in the password manager, which incorrectly pre-fills the HTTP authentication dialog with uh, of one domain with the credentials for another, which could be exploited for phishing. And finally, there was an integer overflow in the way sandbox messages are deserialized that could lead. could could lead to remote code execution. So a handful of, you know, your typical problems that they have uh, addressed in a series of um, updates. And so anyone using Chrome should address that. And we don't often talk about OpenOffice, but it has just been um, updated. So, and it's, you know, it's very popular. It's a, like, you know, the... Uh, leading big suite over on you know non Windows platforms Linux Unix and so forth, um, and it is um, anything prior to three point two has a host of problems which have been identified. There's a, a series of security announcements over on OpenOffice.org, and so anyone who is an active OpenOffice user should just go to OpenOffice.org and get themselves updated to three point two. Not all language variants are yet available in 3.2. English is, and and they're beginning to get recompiled and 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 brought online. So you want to make sure that that yours, if you're a non-English speaker um, or you're using one of those, um, is available. So and, and these are these are things we've actually talked about uh, in other contexts. There's like you know GIF image exploits and remote execution kind of things and and it's it would be a mistake to think oh well not that many people are using open office so the bad guys are probably not focusing on it what what we're seeing increasingly and we saw this with the aurora the so-called aurora attacks against google and the 30 other companies is that sophisticated hackers are getting very smart about targeting their attacks. So for example in the case of Google, they were able to they were able to compromise one person's machine and but that wasn't the person who had the kind of privileges they wanted or needed. So they had that person's machine send email to other people within Google who did have the access privileges on their machines. And that allowed the malware to jump from, you know, inside of Google from, from a less privileged user to a more privileged user, moving the malware toward their target. So, I mean, that's a, a very sophisticated attack. And so you can imagine that if, if somebody were like, a, if, a, if an enterprise were using open office org throughout their enterprise, it would be possible to see that. By looking at the nature of the documents that this organization produces. Well, that flags them as open office. Then the bad guys go look to see if there are any bad problems with open office that could be exploited. They'd say, oh, look, there's a problem with GIF images. So they would start sending people in that organization custom custom exploits for problems they know the software the organization is using. I mean, this is really happening these days. So, you know, that's this is sort of the evolving nature of of exploitation of vulnerabilities. It's no longer just being sprayed out onto the Internet. I mean, that's going on, too. But but enterprises being targeted as Google and these other companies we know now were um, are, are looking closely at the software these enterprises are using and then turning around and looking for vulnerabilities. So the fact that you're not using something that's super popular really doesn't mean that you, you're not vulnerable to, to that kind of attack. That's kind of surprising
0: because, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that Mac aficionados often say is, well, we're uh, we're not a popular platform, so we're mm-hmm. less likely to attack. So if they start attacking things like OpenOffice, that's a much smaller subset than the Mac universe. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Now, my my little bit of, I can't believe this happened, but it's true news, is that irate parents have claim and have sued and have proof that a Pennsylvania high school district has been spying on its students at home using school-issued MacBooks with the webcam. Yep. There's security software that was installed without disclosure in these machines. And the, so the idea was that if the machines were lost or stolen, the security software would be used in order to help the, the district recover the lost or stolen machines. The problem is that for reasons that aren't clear, the district got caught really misbehaving. Um according to the original complaint there's a um, a mom and dad whose last name is Robbins uh, who accused um, a Harrington high school assistant principal of imp- um, um, oh I'm sorry was accused by a Harrington high school assistant principal of quote improper behavior in the student's home the the assistant principal showed the student a photograph taken of him at home through his laptop's web camera. Oh, God. and Oh, and, boy. That's not good. That's really not good. So the uh, the school superintendent, a guy named Christopher McGinley, said, quote, there was no explicit notification that the laptop contained security software. This notice should have been given and we regret that it was not done. So these guys are in hot water. It, it's... It's interesting there's a, there's a guy who bought a little um, a sub notebook, uh, a little novo in fact, who's a regular in the morning at Starbucks and uh, he bought it actually on my recommendation. and it has a webcam up at the top of the screen, you know where they typically go in a laptop. And the first thing he did was cover it up with a post-it note because he just you know, I told him that it was very possible. And it had happened that webcams were used by bad guys for spying. And so he just, you know, covered it over with a post-it note. He actually uses it as as little crib notes for some of his function keys. And I got a kick out of the fact one of the articles that covered this story of Peninsula, uh, the, the Pennsylvania High School talked about word had spread that this was going on, and the students were all covering up the webcams huh. with <laughs> post-it
0: notes. You know, it's really worse than even the story... Uh... You know, they admit, for instance, 42 cases of doing this. Yep. The FBI is now involved. And then yesterday I read a blog post that pointed to a YouTube video where the IT guy from the school district was boasting about the software they use, which is called Mm. Revlan. And frankly, the way he was talking, the thing that he liked most about it was that he could hide it. He could cloak it from the users that it
1: was running. Well, it was. It had rootkit technology, so that it would be installed and and no one would know. It's um,
0: stunning. Uh, they, I mean, I mean, the implications of child porn, even of.
1: I mean this this is this is the repercussions are going to be felt. Yeah, the I, yeah exactly the idea that it's that there was some policy that had the school arbitrarily. Looking out of people's webcams, the parents of this of this student who was shown the photo of himself at at home said that, you know, he was using a laptop that was duly and formally and properly authorized by the school. they, They took it home. It was never reported missing or stolen. There was absolutely no reason for someone at the school to activate that machine's camera. And be looking out to see what he could see. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> just creepy. It, it, it couldn't It couldn't be uh, any worse. I mean, it just yeah. couldn't be
0: any worse. Just it's creepy. creepy. I'm giving a seminar in a couple of weeks on... Um, it's called uh, Wired Families Safe Kids. It's about um, keeping kids online, but keeping them protected in privacy and so forth. And, you know, all schools are doing... By the way, this is for my kid's school, and all people like me are doing is saying, "Well, kids have to. You have to protect your privacy. Don't reveal this stuff on Facebook." And then this comes along, <laughs> and it's the same people who are saying, "Don't put your stuff on Facebook. We're spying on you." it's yeah. uh, Well, if there's any silver lining to this cloud, is that people will now be much more thoughtful about this whole thing.
1: I mean, well, yes, and I think, for example, that's the same con. The the same upshot that um, will result from the trouble Google got in with, with the way they had Buzz originally configured. As I'm, you know, it's, right. I'm I'm sorry for Google's, you know, the stain they've got, and I'm sure they'll recover from it. But the fact that it was Google and so high profile and generated so much yes. <clears throat> bu- <Yes>. buzz, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, it will help other people not make that mistake. I mean, these things have to be opt-in, not opt-out. And how many times in the last four and a half years have you and I talked about the the whole, well, in fact, that was the name of my first, of this first spy, anti-spyware utility written, which I wrote, was mm-hmm. called Opt-Out. Because, you know, it was like, this is not okay to do and and tell people, okay, yes, um, I want to turn it off. It ought to be off. And you have to turn it on by default. I mean, on if that's what you want. And the reason people, people don't have things that way is they are trying to get some leverage. I mean, Google knew that if these, all this was turned off by default, then all this miraculous, you know, social networking glue that would all knit everything together wouldn't just happen. You know, it, right. would, be, it, would, it would be a much slower start. And if it just, you know, you added buzz and suddenly all your contacts were finding each other and everything was it's like, okay, wait, you know, mm. what are the consequences mm. of this? People just weren't informed. It's good. I mean, in the long run, it's
0: all good. It raises people's issue, awareness of all of this stuff. And, um, you know, I love buzz. I use buzz all the time and it didn't bother me. Uh, but um, and buzz has changed how it works. So it's opt in, yep. not opt out. But it is a black mark. You know, it really is.
1: Uh, yeah. and, and so uh, again, I'm I'm glad I'm I'm not glad that Google got hurt by it, but this is this is a perfect example for the world to see. Just like this this webcam in the laptops is like, whoa! I mean, I'm glad it's getting some attention because this is just not okay, and um, I'd like to see. Something like we have on on cameras now where it's clear that the webcam is on, you know, like little lights on either side of the camera. So, you know, they're turned on if the camera is on just so you know that, it, you know, that it's happening. So that you have some feedback.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, speaking of which, speaking of feedback, <laughs> I have a fun, a fun note uh, about Spinrite. The, the subject was Spinrite takes a vacation. And I, and I thought, Spinrite takes a vacation. Okay, well, this is from a listener. Uh, Security Now Feedback. Uh, his name is Jared Shockley. He's in Bellevue, Washington. And he says, hi, Steve and Leo. I purchased a copy of Spinrite just over a year and a half ago when one of the hard drives in my web server started puking. I always heard you both talking about it, but finally got a copy. Ironically, it didn't fully repair the hard drive, but I found a huge error-slash-failure in my RAID controller. I upgraded the hardware, and all was well. Now on to the story at hand. I got a new 500-gig hard drive for Christmas last year for both my girlfriends and my laptops. I did not have a spare machine I could install it in to run a pre-install check of the drive with Spinrite. My laptop was so happy to have the (laughs) spare space and faster drive. However, I noticed that Windows Home Server's backup was failing due to an error. I checked into the errors, and it was a drive error. Checking into all of my logs, there was a problem with my new drive. I was crushed. On top of this, I found it the day before my girlfriend and I were supposed to go to the Washington coast for a mini vacation, including lots of digital photography. I hadn't installed my girlfriend's drive. So I thought I could run Spinrite on the current drive and then clone to her new drive. So I started Spinrite on level 4 at 6 p.m. the night before we were supposed to leave. The next day, we both were getting everything packed to go at around 10 a.m. And I looked at my laptop. Spinrite was only 42% of the way through and had been there since we woke up at 7 which meant it had hit some bad spots on the drive and of course was in was in deep recovery mode. He says, "I was crushed. I didn't want to stop spin right, but I needed the machine to go with us. Suddenly, I got a wild hair. I have a universal power adapter for my laptop with a car plug. The only thing I was concerned about was keeping the system cool. I figured out how to arrange the laptop in the back seat of the car with the power supply and a USB fan blowing on it. We drove all the way out to the coast and checked into our lodging. The whole time, the laptop was running on the car power so it wasn't on its own battery. It was about 50% done when we got there, and I then relocated it into the room. One more night of work... And Spinrite was done at 10 a.m. the next day. After 40 hours of level four with lots of data recovery, it had found nine bad sectors that it could not recover, but 15 that it could. I performed the clone to the other 500 gig drive without any issue. Immediately after the second clone, I ran Spinrite on level two, and it loved the drive because it had fixed all the bad sectors. Of course. Since I still have the original drive, I can recover any damaged files. The vacation was a wonderful time. The little I needed to do was I was able to do on my triple E PC while Spinrite saved the day. As I just took a new job as director of IT for a company, one of my first purchases is enough licensing for Spinrite to have a site license. Thank you for a great product. Greg for awesome tech support. Sue for incredible customer purchasing support. And Leo for putting everything on the internet. Sincerely, Jared Shockley. Well, that's nice. That's
0: Great really note. nice. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and deserve it, Steve. Well, it's uh, I pay my dues.
0: So there's a word in um, programming called indirection that is one of the fundamental programming concepts. And I remember very well when I first started studying C... I mean I remember peek and poke from basic, which is essentially the same idea. But when I first started setting C, that was the hardest thing to get was indirection. And yes. that's what you're gonna teach us.
1: We're gonna talk about it. It it is it's something I didn't want to get into week before last when we laid out the fundamental architecture for how simple a computer is, because we're because it begins to add a little more complexity, but it, it existed back then on a PDP-8, um, on the PDP-11, the, the early Data General Nova machines. It's always been there. And it's a very powerful concept, but the power is the problem. So we're going to cover the whole issue of indirection and pointers. The power of the pointer in just a moment. Before we do that, though, I
0: want to uh, take a little break and mention our friend's at uh, Citrix who do go to meeting you know actually there's a there is kind of a relationship here to go to meeting go to meeting is like setting up a pointer to your PC in a way um, in fact if you go right now to gotomeeting.com/security now you can install go to meeting on your office computer or whatever computer you're sitting at but put it on the computer that you want to access remotely and now it's like you've put a uh, like a pointer to that computer at the go servers and now, um, anytime you want to have a meeting, you're on the phone with somebody and you're talking about something, you want to uh, uh, you know them, them to see a PowerPoint or you've got a spreadsheet, maybe you work together with somebody on documents and you want to do it kind of at the same time. you say to the person, "Go to go com." am I go, am I pushing this analogy too far? I don't think so. Go to go meeting.com. Here's the meeting ID now. They go to go to meeting, but they get a pointer back to your computer. See what I'm saying? And they see what's on your desktop. Because they do it this way, there's that traversal is automatic, there's no firewall issues, there's no uh, you know, you don't have to DMZ anything, you don't have to port forward, it just works. It's this kind of three party system and suddenly it's fast suddenly they're seeing your computer i mean they're seeing what's on your screen the powerpoint the spreadsheets you're working together you're collaborating great for training even they can literally they can be sitting on their computer anywhere in the world mac or pc by the way and you can show them how to use a program that's on your computer and then you can say to them okay now you use it but i don't have the program no 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 use it on my computer they can go to meeting it makes those boring old conference calls something real, something visual, something effective for sales presentations, product demos, training sessions, collaboration. There is nothing better, especially because you can try it free right now for a month, a month of unlimited online meetings. One month, 30 days. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. Give it a try. I know you're going to love it. All right, Steve, I'm ready to become uh, indirect. Was okay. that, I think that was an apt description of, of a pointer.
1: Yeah, it was a high level pointer.
0: <laughs> very high level. Uh, was a very high level. That's a very high level. All right, pointer. I'll let you do the low level. That's sort of like uh go go north, young man. <laughs> okay. Well, that's Yeah, that's an old Zen proverb, you know. Uh, I guess it was a west. That you a, go west, but you point at the moon, <laughs> moon and uh I'm and, already west, so I don't I can't go much further west.
1: <laughs> I, just, I get west.
0: You get west. You point at the moon and it, they're looking at the finger instead of the moon. Babies do that. You go look at the moon. They don't they don't get that the finger is a
1: pointer. Ah, true. That's indirection. Yep. Okay, so if we turn back two weeks to where we talked about machine language, we'll remember and, and recall from that that we have a a bunch of memory uh, which is organized in in words which contain each word containing a set of bits and that a program counter count is used to address a particular word in main memory, which it, which it reads from memory. The bits then determine what the machine does in that step. And everything is done sort of step by step. So, for example in in the machine we sort of the little virtual machine we designed last uh, two weeks ago the upper 4 bits were our op code and they would um, that would give us one of 16 different possible operations and so for example if if it was 0000, zero, zero, zero if, if those first the leftmost 4 bits were all zeros that might be the add instruction and the balance of the bits in the word would would, would be sort of the, the, where, where the opcode is the verb, the balance of the bits would be the noun that is add what? that is to say add the um, contents of a certain location where those those bits in the word would specify the address. Or we might load from a location or store to a location or or and. The cons- the the contents of the accumulator, which is sort of our scratch pad storage, with a certain location. So, so once doing that, the program counter would increment to the next word in memory and do whatever that said, whatever the opcode in that word specified. And so, if if you really think about it, it's it, it's a script. The, the this program is a script of instru- of step-by-step instructions which the computer executes and it gets a little more complicated because it's able to step out of sequence using skip and jump instructions to to go somewhere else so there's our computer now imagine a problem as the designers of this early computer and all early computers did where for example we we have a document that's that's living in the computer's memory, and we want to search it for a certain word, which, you know, and, and we use find in our word processors all the time. The idea being that the computer needs to scan down through memory, through this document, to find what we've told it we want it to locate. So with this simple computer that we've got, how do we specify a succession of different addresses in memory? That is, you know, the the word contains the address we want to load, but it just contains that one address. It doesn't, like, you know, how do we scan through memory? Well, if we only had what we've described so far, you there would be two ways to do this. You could have... Individual instructions, one after the other, that that loaded successive locations in memory into the accumulator to see whether it, it had what we were looking for. That is, an instruction would be load location 100, and then it would check to see, then it would be load location 101, and it would check to see, and load location 102. Well, obviously that's a hugely long program. Because you're needing several instructions for in order to check each location in memory. So, that's arduous. Now, another approach, the other approach, would be something that is generally frowned on, and that is self-modifying code. That is to say, since the instruction itself is in memory, and for example, it said load location 100, then the program could change that that the actual data for that instruction from 100 to 101 and then load it, see if we found it. If not, then increment that that location of the actual specified in the program to 102. So the problem is that it, it requires that the program is modifying itself, which becomes messy pretty quickly. So what, what the original architects of these, of these early machines decided is instead of the instruction, like said, load 100, instead of that instruction specifying what to load, the instruction would have an option of specifying the location that contains... The address of what to load. Okay, so <laughs> and it's 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 we have to be careful even the, by like the way we talk about this because it's it's amazing how easy it is to get tangled up. But in in these early instruction sets, um, as I talked about it so far, we had for example a four bit opcode and the rest of the bits specified what the opcode acted on. What what. Address in memory was loaded or stored or added or whatever. These early computers used one more bit. That is, so there was an opcode of four bits. And then, for example, another bit right next to it called the indirection bit. And then the rest of the bits that were remaining specified the location. That is to say that the designers of these machines took one more bit for this purpose from the instruction so what this meant was if the if it was an a so-called for example an indirect load if it said load indirect 100 what that meant was you would, the, the the computer would would get the contents of location 100 and treat the contents as the address to load the data. In other words, that the the location, the, the, the contents of location 100 was a pointer to the data that should be loaded. And that is an incredibly powerful concept. That it is, seems so simple. Well, yes. and And the reason it... I mean, it is simple. And it was even simple to do in hardware. I mean, all they had to do was you know they were going to load the the contents of 100 anyway so they so they did they loaded the the contents of location 100 for example but though so the question is do you use what you just loaded or do you you treat it as the pointer to what you want to load that is, and and that's so so the logic in the computer was I mean, it was inexpensive for them to implement this, and they got something so powerful as a result. So, if we return to our simple example of searching memory, all we need to do now is the the program refers to the the to, to location one hundred, but we're using the 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 value of that as the as the address of the data. That we're going to load, so we simply increment that location. And in fact, the early machines like the PDP-8 um, and uh, the PDP-11 and the, the even the, the Data General Novas—it was another machine of that time—they had what was called auto incrementing memory that is auto incrementing locations, literally. Reserved a, res, a reserved block of memory, typically down at the beginning of memory. In the case of the Data General Nova, it was location. I think it was seven, seven, eight. Um, I'm trying to think of which location. I don't remember now. I think it it might have been octal ten through octal seventeen. It's so funny that you remember it. <laughs> so, so it was the 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 the, the eighth through the fifteenth locations, and the way the way that worked was if you if ever you you referred to those locations indirectly they the, the computer itself would increment the value for you and what was really neat remember we talked 2 weeks ago about this notion of of memory which destroys its contents when you read it like core memory which is what was used back then in order to read the contents of the memory you needed to, to, to destroy what was there. Essentially, you wrote all zeros into the memory word. And the inductive pulse caused by the cores switching from one to zero is what let the computer know what had been stored there. But, but in the process, you wrote zeros. So it was necessary to have a, a second memory cycle to write back what you had just destroyed, ah! But in the case of auto incrementing, you wanted to write back one greater. So what was so clever is that is that you sort of got this auto increment or auto decrement for free. That is, it sort of folded it right into the 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 recovery of the prior contents of the core memory, so that again. Very simple logic to just increment the value by one. We talked about that last week in one of our Q&A questions about how do you increment something. And it's, it's you know, very simple logic to do. So so now with this very bare bones instruction set, we're able to, to easily scan through as much memory as we want to. We simply say... Instead of using location one hundred, for example, on a on, on a PDP eight or even in the early Data General Nova, the the Nova also had auto decrement blo- a block of memory, and when he, when you referred to it indirectly, the computer would decrement so that you're able to sort of scan from high memory down as opposed to low memory up. And so, in the case of the of our little project here to to locate something in memory, we we would establish the beginning of the buffer that we want to scan. We would put its address into, say, location octal 10. Then we would say load indirect 10. So we're not loading the contents of 10. The the computer reads the contents of location 10 and increments it and puts one more than that back in 10. Then it uses the the, the value that it, res- that it read from location 10 as the address to be to, uh, as the address containing the data to be loaded. And so our program can be very small, very efficient, and every time it does this load indirect octal 10, it gets what actually is loaded is a word somewhere else in memory. And it's the successively next word every time we do this. So again, very simple, tiny steps, but very powerful. Now, what we've done is to to empower the programmer with a, with a concept which is 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 needed for the for the sake of of programming efficiency, but it's. It's tricky because even today, you know, we're talking about security problems all the time that that contemporary software has. And Leo, you were talking about, you know, you, you've done programming. Yeah. And for example, in C is, you know, the pointers are used... It's um, built into the language. It's... It, it's exactly. It, yeah. it, it's intrinsic property of the language. And in fact pointers have historically caused so much problem that there are languages that boast they don't have them because it's like, oh, if you don't have this, you can't get yourself in trouble. And and, and what happens is programmers can easily make the mistake of whether they are referring to something or they're referring to where that something points to. And it, it's funny. It's I think the problem is there isn't a good analogy in life. That is, you know, we're we're used to seeing something and you reach out and grab it. And there's a you know there's no indirection most of the time. And so I don't think mentally we we humans model something as abstract as a pointer. I mean we understand intellectually what it is. But I, you know, in the years I've been programming, I'm I'm always having to be very careful. And and programmers who have used pointers extensively know they have to be very careful to make sure what they would that that there isn't a gap between what they mean and what they tell the computer. Because the computer, as we know, is very literal. It'll do exactly what you tell it. So one of the you know in in for example in in c or any of these pointer based languages you you need to be able to get the address of an object as opposed to the contents of the object and if you think about it if you had a language say like basic basic the the the, the basic language until you had for example peek and poke as as you were referring to yeah Leo. yeah um, Which is, that's indirection in a way, right? Because you can, oh, it it absolutely yeah. is. Yeah, if you just have a the, the basic language where you say you know a equals one, b equals two, c equals a plus b, you cannot get yourself in trouble. I mean, the there's no notion of of pointing to something else. You know, a and b are variables. The the language takes care of that for you if you say c equals a plus b then again the compiler is 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 completely hiding that right but as soon as you say a equals where b is pointing to now i mean you have let the genie out of the bottle because as a pointer it that that b where b b is pointing to it can point to anything i mean it can point to outer space it can point to the operating system it can point i mean to data structures inside the program i mean suddenly there is an awesome amount of responsibility that that comes with that power and frankly it's one of the things that makes c it, it, that allows people to reg- to allow people to regard c as a relatively low level language you know it was designed from the beginning to be a a language close to the machine in which you could implement system level software you know unix was written in in c yeah. yeah huge and so it is it is a it's an intrinsic of of machine language it's always been there one of the variations as we evolved is the notion of, of what was called index registers you could or, or indexing, which is just another way of saying the same thing, where you could, on, in some of the early machines that had, for example, like, like the Data General Nova, had four accumulators, AC0, 1, 2, and 3. And the, the last two accumulators, AC2 and 3, could be treated as so-called index registers which is exactly what we're talking about. We're, we're we're saying that they contain the address of the target location rather than their contents being used directly. And index registers are a are a component and, and indirection is, is a component of all contemporary machines today. They, you know they they come in different shapes and sizes and an additional complexity, but. But this, this basic structure um, has been around from the, the beginning and is really powerful. Indirection. Next,
0: recursion. Gonna, <laughs> I mean, you indir- I tell you, Pointers was hard for me, even though I had, as I said, had experience with peek and poke. The little carrot and the little ampersand and see, it was like, I use what? When, but once you get it, it is so powerful, and it's really not that hard. You just did a great job in fifteen minutes of explaining it.
1: Well, it's not. It's not hard. What I think, though, is it is mistake
0: prone. Ah, well, and,
1: okay. Now the security issues arise. Yeah, exactly. Because because this is what we see, and, and in fact, if you remember, one of the things that the bad guys do is they are able to confuse data and instructions bad guys when right. we talk about remote code execution exploits the, the the idea is that data in a gif image or in a buffer that is that is tr- that is moved across the internet it is not supposed to be executable but but because of the power of pointers literally for this reason because of the power of pointers it is possible for data to get confused with code, and for the bad guys to leverage this power to get the data that they've provided to be executed as code, and at that point, all bets are off. Yeah. That's why you have
0: this feature in Windows uh, where you can't execute code out of the data
1: uh, stack. Right. Uh, DEP, Data Execution Protection. Right. The idea is that, that that there are regions of memory... Which a programmer can, when they're setting things up, they're able to say, okay, I intend for this buffer to be data, not executable. And that was a feature added relatively recently to, in, in the case of Intel, to the Intel architecture so that, so that blocks of memory that were being allocated by the operating system could be marked as, as read-only, uh, writable, or execute. A bowl, or not, in the case of of leaving this bit off, so that literally, if your program attempted to jump, that is, again, we we have a program counter in today's processors, just like we did back then. So, if your program counter attempted to be set to the address of of an address inside this block of memory, there's there are gates in the chip which check the the, the, the privilege bits associated with this allocation of memory and say, oh, wait a minute, the execute bit is off on this block of memory. We cannot execute from this memory. Therefore, the program counter is not allowed uh-huh. to, to fetch from that. And what that does is it, it, it pulls an exception, essentially a, a violation um, deliberately that returns control to the operating system, saying, "Whoops, this program just tried to do something it should not. It should not try to do. We don't know why. We don't. We don't know that it's a bad guy. It could just be a mistake in the code. But, well, it could be intentional. Programmers do this all the
0: time. They stick program code on the stack, which is well, as we now f- know bad. Yes.
1: And, and, and in fact, Windows depended upon that right. in the in the old days. It actually the the back before hardware graphics acceleration where you were you were wanting to move rectangles of data around from one place to another on the screen it was it was too slow if you had a general purpose chunk of code that would say move this many bits and then you know, and 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 is is counting down the bits as you move them, and then goes back over and does another line, and so it's, it like does line by line in in a raster scan order. The problem was that was just too slow. So what Windows did was when you said I want to move a rectangle of data from one place on the screen somewhere else, it actually wrote custom code on the stack. In order to, to do just that one operation one time, and th- which much faster than you could you could execute a, a much more general piece of code to do that, and then it would just discard it. And in fact, um, we're going to be talking about what is a stack um, week after next because it's one of the oh, next. good. Oh, the, yeah, 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 The next evolution of of you know fundamental technology. That, and, and and actually, the early machines did not have a stack. The, the machine we've been talking about, our little hypothetical machine, there was no stack. But the, the the introduction of that concept was another sort of crucial, critical addition to the way computers work that uh, it was so good, you know, no one would do one without them that, uh, these days. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. It's these little abstractions that uh, advance computer science in, in big leaps, uh, and it's uh, it's wonderful when you get it because your brain and your understanding of how this stuff works advances in a big leap too.
1: You really feel it. You go, I get it, pointers, yeah. or I get it, stacks, and and the abstraction is fun. I oh, mean, I it's, love it's, it. It's fun to, to to Well, in that in that, it is. I think. That's one of the hooks for people who love to program. Yes. Is they 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 just they they get off on this kind of of true abstract thinking. That's just
0: it's just great. Absolutely, yeah. That's the uh, that's where the art and the joy of programming comes in. Steve, you're the best. Steve Gibson is the man in charge at the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. dot com. You can find Spin right there. That's his that's his bread and butter, his day job. Uh, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, a must-have if you've got a hard drive, grc.com. You'll also find the show there, uh, including 16-kilobit versions, which Steve uh, creates himself, edits with his own little razor blade and tape, and uh, and puts online so that those of you with low bandwidth, can even, even you can hear the show. Um, and uh, transcriptions, which Steve pays for himself. He's a very generous guy. We don't do any of this stuff for him. He does, <laughs> he does it all on his own. Uh, show notes and more grc.com if you've got feedback next week is a feedback a Q&A episode uh, grc.com/feedback is a great place to go to leave a question or a comment or a suggestion yep please do yeah um, uh, i think that that's oh oh i forgot there's so much great free stuff there too don't worry you, you know you don't even if you uh, don't have a dime to your name you can get great free stuff at grc.com steve uh, thank you for explaining pointers so succinctly and wonderfully i wish yep. i had this when i was
1: starting out They are um, very, very powerful. They come from indirection. And uh, like these other core technologies, they'll always be with us. And so uh, we'll do stacks in two weeks. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.